Hello, this is Laurie Kaufman, author of The Lens and the Looker, Volume 1 of the Verona Trilogy. Here's the first of eight free installments of The Lens and the Looker. To find out how to get all the other installments, go to my website, www.lauriekaufman.com. That's www.lorykaufman.com. Enjoy! The Lens and the Looker, Book One of the Verona Trilogy, by Laurie S. Kaufman. Read for you by Craig Walker. Chapter 1 2347 CE Common Era The Community of New York One of Handsome's earliest memories was of his mother telling him he was just like his name sounded in the Old English, Handsome. But lately, when teachers and parents commented that Seventeen was too old to still be going through a rebellious stage, he just smiled that sincere, enigmatic smile of his and shrugged. Handsome didn't even argue as the head of his prep college, an old artificial intelligence named Dean Turkinshaw, told him he was being sent to deep immersion history camp. "'Hey, hard time H.C., bring it on,' Handsome challenged. Dean Turkinshaw squinted his one round eye, and his two balloon cheeks puffed out indignantly. Then Handsome watched as the old educator forced himself to calm down, taking a virtual deep breath and then lowering his single eyebrow in a show of sympathetic concern. Handsome lowered his two eyebrows, mirroring the facial expression. The A.I.'s round orb of a head, which was indeed his whole body, was levitating at Handsome's eye level. With practiced patience, old Cyclops, as the students called Turkinshaw behind his orb, began a teacherly pep talk. "'I hope your time at history camp will help you to see the big picture,' the dean began. "'It's important for young humans to experience how your ancestors struggled for thousands of years, repeating the same mistakes over and over again. As I'm sure you've learned, they almost drove themselves to extinction.' "'He's so flippin' earnest,' Handsome thought." It's like he's going to cry any minute. Extinction, Turkinshaw repeated seriously. Imagine it, and they almost took what was left of the natural world with them. But, son, what we really hope for you is to gain a true appreciation of how stable and beautiful the world is now. A world that humans and AIs built together. History Camp can give you that valuable insight. Handsome nodded slowly and sympathetically. Okay, Dean, you're quite right, of course. I promise you, sir, I will try to get the most from this experience. Turkinshaw smiled benevolently. Of course, to Handsome, getting the most out of this experience meant he would do his utmost to drive every single history camp and actor he met crazy. He knew that at that very moment, untold numbers of enactors were setting up a scenario that was designed to scare him straight. It would be a fun challenge to disrupt their grand plans. The thought made his smile beam even brighter. You... 
You seem sincere enough, the old AI said. Well, you know what they say, Dean. The secret to success is sincerity. And, Handsome ran a hand through his mop of tousled, dirty blonde hair, a lock of the long, wavy pompadour fell over his olive-colored forehead. And once you can fake sincerity, you've got it made in the shade. The dean blinked in surprise. Handsome blinked his cool, hazel eyes, too, twice. Then he grinned, a big, toothy grin. It was unmistakable in its meaning. "'Why, you little con artist!' Dean Turkinshaw's orb zoomed nose-to-nose -nose with Handsome. "'I will make it my business to inform everyone about your ability to charm the fuzz off a peach,' he growled. "'You won't be able to get away with anything.' "'No probs,' Handsome said blithely. He watched the grey, wiry hair which stuck out from Turkinshaw's sides begin to vibrate like a tuning fork, then added, "'Perhaps we can continue this conversation when I return.' "'Sincerely.' Handsome had cultivated the ability not to sound obsequious, even when he spoke like this. It didn't matter whether the teacher was human or A.I. Handsome always got to them. Turkinshaw's two cheeks puffed out again, and his light green orb blushed a blotchy red. "'Get out!' the dean shouted. "'Go to your dorm. Empty your closet. Collect your things. A history camp transport is picking you up in an hour.' "'Mission accomplished,' Handsome thought. He turned on his heels and walked leisurely toward the door. It swung open, and as Handsome crossed into the school hallway, the dean cried, "'We'll see how two weeks at a hard-time history camp suits you!' Handsome heard the doors slam shut behind him. The school was bustling with students, teachers, and about an equal number of levitating orbs. By law, artificial intelligences could look like anything but a good imitation of a human. There were AIs shaped like a cat head, a camel, a yellow marigold, and even a wizard, complete with a long beard and conical hat. Then he spotted her. Hey, Charlene! Everybody on the planet had an AI. Charlene, Handsome's personal AI, nanny and staunch protector since birth, was there waiting for her boy. She was a deceptively whimsical design. Although she was solid and definitely heavier than air, she looked like a floating yellow balloon with a crayon-drawn face that Handsome had created before he had turned three. When she saw Handsome, she levitated toward him. Dean Turkinshaw wasn't very happy. Charlene's voice was a soothing contralto. He should be absolutely euphoric, Handsome replied. He just had the fun of sentencing me to two weeks at hard-time history camp. That's not his pleasure, that's his job, sweetheart. But he looked quite vexed. You must have gotten to him. You know exactly what happened, Handsome said lightly. He was well aware of how anything to do with him was instantly transmitted to Charlene. Besides, you know I only bring out the best in people, no matter how much it hurts. Come on, I've got some history camp teachers to teach. Chapter 2 Forty-five minutes later, Handsome and Charlene stood and floated on the open campus green, waiting for the history camp transport. The community of New York College was one of the largest schools on the continent, with almost 500 students, and the community itself was one of the largest on the planet, with over 30,000 people and AIs combined. They were outside one of the many low-rise dormitories. 
The structures, cut stone igloos about 10 meters in diameter, had one level of living space above the ground and two below. The place was similar to Hansom's family village, a community of 60 people set just off the bank of the Hudson River on what was known as the Old York Escarpment. This was the new coastal shoreline after the oceans finished rising several centuries earlier. The green commons of the college was also like Hansom's village, in that it had community gardens, which Hansom's father tended as the elder horticulturalist. An open area for sports and community gatherings, orchards and pens for raising livestock. The college also had an amphitheater for live performances, where Hansom had done pretty well in regional sabre matches. Hansom had his trunk of clothes and belongings by his side and held his dueling sabre. He mock-parried and slashed at the air with the weapon. A few times he gave Charlene a quick look to warn her to duck or dodge to get out of the blade's trajectory. I wish I knew what era and place they're sending me, Hansom said while slicing the air with his blade. It would be fun to be able to use my sword and riding skills there. Besides being part of the college fencing and horseback riding teams, the athletic Hansom had trained at a history camp a few summers earlier as a Renaissance soldier. Many students spent vacations at history camp summer jobs working as an actors, people who lived wholeheartedly as citizens from a bygone era. There he had received extra lessons on sword fighting and horseback riding, plus archery and hand-to-hand -hand combat. Hansom had to admit he got this plum job because his mother was a history camp elder, so his intentions had been not to rock the boat for her sake. But he couldn't help himself. He began to rabble-rouse and contradict the philosophy of history camps to other students. He also argued vehemently with the H.C. elders in charge of the place. "'Why would you say those things?' his mother had asked after they sent Hansom home. "'Because it's true,' he said. "'History camps are nothing more than society's way of forcing kids to fit into the present power structure. "'It's brainwashing. It's fascism.' "'Fascism?' his mother wailed. "'Now you really are overstating the matter.' "'That had been almost two years ago. "'A thoughtful look came into Hansom's face, and he put the sword down. "'You know what I don't understand?' he asked Charlene. "'What would make my parents think a history camp would make me change what I think? "'Even a hard-time history camp?' "'Deep immersion history camp,' Charlene corrected.' "'Yeah, yeah,' Handsome scoffed. "'But why do they think I'd be fooled? "'Those places can't work on me because I know all about them. "'After all, Mum and Dad met and worked at a history camp, "'and Mum is still a history camp elder. "'I've grown up with it. "'I know it's all fake. "'They can't scare me.' "'Once again you miss the point,' Charlene said. "'History camps were set up for people of our society "'to learn how people lived and struggled in the past.' Youths learn to appreciate the wonderful, steady-state world we have now, and, more importantly, help society not repeat the mistakes of the past. Sure, sure, Hansom interrupted. Those who do not learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. See, I know all that. But you obviously don't know enough, Charlene rebuked. How about that miserable performance on your test this morning? That was the straw that broke the camel's back. What convinced the dean you deserve to be sent away? Zero marks you got. Zero. Ah, oh, I could have passed that test. I was just fooling around. Handsome yawned. And I was up all night.
"'And now you'll be gone for the next two weeks.' Charlene went silent, and the image of her face turned into a frown. "'That's the longest we've ever been apart in your whole life,' she said. A drawn tear rolled down her cheek. "'I'm going to miss you.' "'Oh, I'll miss you too, Charlene. I will.' "'Fat lot you will,' Charlene sniffed. "'It's true! It's true!' Hanson replied sincerely. But he also knew he was ready to get away from his family and have an adventure. Being away seemed exciting to him, even if it was only to a history camp. "'Well, at least you're willing to say it,' Charlene said, pulling herself together. "'Okay, then. I'm supposed to remove your implant before the transport gets here.' "'Oh, dear Gaia, I forgot about that,' Hansom said, putting a hand to his temple. "'That's where his subdermal communication implant was.' They were placed under the skin at the right temple and communicated directly into the brain. While not true telepathy, a person could speak in a whisper and the processor, knowing its host intimately, would recreate both an appropriate auditory and visual transmission of the person, including a realistic background of where they were. I'll miss my mind parties and talking to my friends all over the planet. Jamie's supposed to contact me when he and his family get to the asteroid belt this evening. Removing your implant for an intense history camp experience makes it all more realistic. It gives the participant a true feeling of being a person of the past, able to communicate only with those right by them and only with words. And don't worry about your messages. I'll redirect them and explain. I'll tell you what, Handsome said, turning on the charm. Let's make a deal. I'll do that test over again, and if I pass... You don't take my implant out. But that's part of the procedure, darling, Charlene said. Just don't tell anyone. Handsome knew full well that all solid AIs were part of a pan-planet association of artificial intelligences, the AAI. They lived by a strict and very conservative code of laws. Although loving and absolutely devoted to their families, AIs did not, could not lie by fact or omission. Hansom was actually surprised at the long pause before Charlene's answer. Could she actually be considering it? Well, she began, how about this? If you pass, I ask permission to just turn the implant off instead of removing it. There is precedent. Zippy, Hansom said. Great, let's do it. Readying himself for the test, Hansom stuck his sword blade into the ground and sat cross-legged on the grass. He tapped his right temple in a specific sequence. Multiple-choice questions appeared in his vision, simulated by the chip and followed by a disembodied male voice, which both he and Charlene could hear. What was the estimated human population of the planet Earth at the beginning of the 14th century in the year 1301? 10,000? 100,000? 300 million? 1 billion? 6 billion? Or 10 billion? One billion, Handsome answered. A check mark appeared beside the answer. The graphic lit up, but not in the way he'd hoped for. Incorrect, the voice said. The human population of the Earth in 1301 is estimated to have been 300 million. Next question. Handsome grimaced, hoping Charlene didn't notice. What was the population of the planet Earth at the beginning of the 21st century, the year 2001? Ten thousand, 
one hundred thousand, three hundred million, one billion, six billion, or ten billion. Oh, that must have been one billion, he said. Incorrect. The population of the Earth in 2001 was six billion. Handsome bit his lower lip. How many humans were on the planet Earth before the population growth dropped quickly in the second half of the 21st century? Approximately 2060, the voice asked. Again, 10,100,300,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,
It was like it came out of nowhere, decelerating in an incredibly short time directly above them. He heard a beep coming from Charlene. "'Charlene here,' she said, answering another call. Handsome reflexively put his hand to where his implant had been to be included in the communication. All he got was an eerie, hollow silence. He forced himself to smile. "'It's only two weeks,' he said to himself. "'I can frustrate a lot of teachers and AIs in that time.' Handsome always liked to look on the bright side of things. "'Yes, yes, we're ready,' Handsome heard Charlene say to somebody. But Charlene didn't look happy. She was wearing her very serious, sad face again. The history camp transport landed, barely disturbing a blade of grass. It was shaped like a raindrop on its side. About five meters long, it could hold about a half a dozen people comfortably. The familiar history camp logo, a stylized human eye with an hourglass set within the iris, was emblazoned on the side. Below the insignia were the Latin words, Noscere Pretoritum ut Locrere Futurum, which translated to, Know the past, earn a future. A click was heard, and the back hatch opened up. Another AI, similar to Charlene, floated out of the transport. This fellow wasn't balloon-like, though. He was in the shape of a dog's head, a tongue-hanging, ear-flopping, slow-eyed hound. He levitated out of the back of the transport in sluggish stops and starts, his attitude projecting a great and profound boredom. He moved forward, stopped, panted, came out a bit more, looked even more bored, stopped again, and repeated the process several more times. Handsome looked on, bemused, till finally the A.I. hovered lazily in front of Charlene and himself. "'Me dog-face,' the canine A.I. said in a rolling, lazy growl. "'Well, you look like a fun person to be cooped up in a transport with,' Handsome said. "'Dean Turkshaw said no give you fuzzy peaches.' Handsome's eyes went wide, but he had to laugh. "'Oh, my God, Charlene, time with this guy is going to be more of a punishment than whatever history camp throws at me.' Dogface made a face and yipped, "'Come! You go history camp! Now!' Okay, I'll get my stuff, Handsome said, bending to pick up his trunk. Leave here. You no need. Not even my toothbrush? How about my sword? Can I use it where I'm going? No sonic tooth cleaners in past. Swords? Can't say. Leave here. I'll take care of things, dear, Charlene said, starting to sniffle again. <laughs> you run along. And more drawn tears flowed from her eyes and slid down underneath her. Oh, for Gaia's sake, Charlene, Handsome said, going to the orb and putting his arms around her. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Charlene continued to cry. Never mind that they were only animated tears that only slid around on her surface. Handsome knew her emotions were real. Why are you carrying on so, Charlene? I'm seventeen. I've got to go out on my own sometimes. I know, but... but... She just kept crying. Handsome had been taught that some A.I.s found being parted from their children quite traumatic. He hugged her again, and then felt the familiar force field grasp and hug him back harder than he had ever felt it before. "'We go!' Dogface barked. When Charlene didn't release Handsome, he repeated, "'We go!' As Charlene let her tractor grip loosen, Handsome backed up into the transport, the whole time peering curiously at the still-despondent Charlene. 
He gave a small wave and watched her sad crayon eyes disappear as the transport's door closed and locked. Charlene felt her eyes go wide as Handsome disappeared into the craft. "'Be good, son,' she said weakly. "'Keep safe.' Charlene watched the transport rise silently into the clear blue sky. Then it flew off over the Atlantic. In a few seconds, it was a small speck on the horizon. Chapter 3 The trip to wherever this history camp was took several hours. It could be anywhere on the planet. Handsome was alone in the transport with Dogface. Besides the sound of the wind on the hull's energy field, Handsome was forced to sit in boring silence. Dogface hovered, looking out the window at the passing clouds, his long canine tongue hanging from his mouth. Whenever Handsome tried to engage him in conversation, the dog would stop panting, look away from the clouds, and silently stare at the teenager. After a few seconds, he began panting again and turned his attention back out the window. Obviously, the dean's threat had been carried out. A.I.s were being chosen who could not appreciate Handsome's charms. So Handsome sat in silence, passing the time by remembering the faces of quite a few girls and several older women who had appreciated what he had to offer. He smiled as he remembered one especially interesting young woman, Rosalind. She was the one who had given him the little brass charm in his pocket. He instinctively put his hand to his forehead to call Rosalind. Then, remembering his implant was gone, he ran his hand through his hair, adjusting it using the reflection of himself in one of the craft's windows. Finally, the floating dog head turned to Handsome and spoke in a high staccato bark. Put on clothes for new home. A rough burlap bag appeared suspended from underneath the levitating head. Handsome took the bag and looked in. He pulled out a piece of undyed, roughly woven wool. He was able to tease from it the shape of a tunic, a tube with two crude sleeves sewn on it. Handsome glared at Dogface. I'm supposed to wear this? Dogface just stared back at him. Where and when is this darn thing supposed to be from? Handsome demanded. Put on, was all the AI responded. Oh, for Gaia's sake, Handsome said. Dogface bared his teeth. Handsome shook his head ruefully, knowing that an AI could never attack one of its charges. He removed his shirt and exposed his long, lean body. I've been working on the abs. What do you think? Dogface just stared with his hound dog eyes. Handsome shrugged and pulled the tunic on. As his head popped through the keyhole neck, the rough wool fabric came into contact with the skin, which felt instantly itchy. He tried to ignore the sensation, but his pectoral muscles twitched involuntarily. Dogface snorted a laugh. Pants now! Change drawers! Handsome pulled out the rest of the clothing. There were two burgundy wool leggings with strings at the top and a pair of what looked like voluminous white linen underpants, also with ties hanging from their leg holes. The only thing vaguely obvious was a cap. I'm supposed to wear all this, he asked, pulling out a pair of old, cracked leather boots. Realizing he was holding genuine leather in his hand, he dropped the boots to the floor. Are those from a real dead animal? They'll look robbery on you. Handsome pulled up the old pieces of cloth, staring at them like they were a complex puzzle. How? The pants are bray, Dogface said, referring to the balloonish underwear. You lace at waist. Leggings called chose. Lace to bray. Handsome glared at Dogface, locking eyes with him. 
With the A.I. thus distracted, Handsome put a hand in his pocket and palmed the brass lamp charm. Then he smiled again and removed his hand from his pockets, continuing his change of clothes. Handsome unbuttoned and removed his modern trousers. He began to pull the medieval bray over top of his 24th century bacteria-balancing boxer shorts. "'Urgh!' Dogface growled. "'Loose skivvies, boy!' Handsome looked into the bag. "'There aren't any underwear in here.' "'Poor indentured apprentice not wear underwear,' the A.I. said. "'You poor apprentice, at least will be.' Handsome looked over at Dogface. The floating head cocked his head cutely, like a puppy. "'And if you thought Tunic was itchy!' Chapter 4 The craft landed and Handsome got off, now dressed in his new old clothes. He stood there in his tunic, bray, chausses, and ill-fitting boots. He adjusted his abrimless cap, or coif. Feeling hot, he undid the string ties that held the ear flaps under his chin. They dangled in the gentle breeze. Handsome scratched himself again, and he took a first look around. He was at the back of what looked to be a medieval barnyard, containing a few outbuildings and a stone house, all with thatched roofs. The barnyard was about a hectare long and enclosed by a stone fence. There seemed to be a succession of these enclosures, all with neat, organized houses and barns of varying shapes. In the distance, he could see the steeples of several stone churches and tall red brick walls stretching out into the distance. He heard a complaining voice at the other end of the barnyard. Get away! Leave me alone! Help! Handsome looked up and saw a young boy being chased into the house by a goat and several chickens. Handsome felt a nudge at his back and turned around. It was Dogface, pushing him with his snout. The A.I. also used the appendage to point to the house. You go, he barked. Bye-bye! And with that, the transport door closed and rose silently into the air. Alone now, Handsome sauntered toward the house. The goat noticed him and leaped in his direction. The young man smiled and put his hand out. The animal shoved its velvety nose into his palm, sniffing for food. Then it looked up at him, with his yellow, slit-pupiled eyes. "'Finally, another mammal,' Handsome said. "'I've had my fill of A.I.'s today.' When no food was forthcoming, the animal lost interest and wandered off. Handsome laughed and continued on to the house." Passing the barn, he looked in and saw a healthy-looking cow and calf in a stall. Hearing oinking, he turned to see a large nursing sow in the shade of a tree. Eight squealing piglets nestled together, gorging themselves from the sow's teats. But Handsome saw no humans. Continuing to the house, he paused in front of the roughly hewn whitewashed door. It wasn't much taller than him. He knocked. No answer. This was where the boy had entered. Was he an, an actor, one of the characters of the history camp? Handsome took hold of the wooden latch and lifted it. The heavy door creaked open, and he stepped in. Looking around the large single room, he saw an earthen floor covered with straw. The ceiling, maybe a head taller than Handsome, was rough-cut, whitewashed timbers and beams. There were steps, little more than a ladder, leading to an upper floor. Sitting on the lowest step, head downcast, was the boy who had been chased by the goat, he was perhaps thirteen. Handsome blinked with surprise when he looked over at a girl sitting on a bench at a table. She appeared to be completely Caucasian. There's something you don't see every day, he thought. 
She was perhaps sixteen, and dressed in clothes handsome reckoned could be from the same period as his. She looked up at him with two penetrating green eyes. "'What are you looking at?' she asked sharply. Handsome put up a hand and smiled. "'Hey, no probs. I'm one of you.' They continued to size each other up, Handsome sure that she was trying to ascertain the same thing as he was, whether they would be on the same side in the upcoming game. Her head was covered with a linen veil, draped to her shoulders. Wisps of light auburn hair puffed out from under her veil at the temples. Two highly arched eyebrows of the same color rose over the two green eyes that stared intently at him. Through him, she wore a long, simple, grey-on-grey striped dress, which covered her from neck to ankle. She had in her hands what looked like a thick twig whose end had been charred and pointed. She had been drawing with it on... What is that called, handsome thought? Oh, yeah, paper. You a hard case, too? he asked. She gave a petulant smirk, and he returned it. Ready for some fun with these guys, he asked. She cocked her head and looked at him. Maybe. Then she lowered her head and continued drawing. Jerk Turkers! the boy on the ladder cursed. Handsome looked over and saw the younger teen tap at his temple, pause, look frustrated, then tap again. Turk Jerkers, he added. And then he groaned and made a face. I'm hungry. Not hard enough, this one, Handsome thought. The younger teen was obviously having a hard time coping, tapping where his communications implant should be. He would tap and wait for a response. After a few seconds, when no reply was forthcoming, he would tap again. Handsome knew the boy was making a futile attempt to contact his AI. The boy on the ladder wore somewhat similarly styled clothes to Handsome, except for a green medieval lira pipe, a hood with a lengthy tubular tail. A long, tawny tunic covered his baggy bray and his red shows, the leggings, extended over his feet. They had reinforced leather soles, so he didn't have separate boots. None of the teen's footwear had arch or ankle supports. But then again, everybody in the 24th century had perfect arches. Chapter 5 Hansom was just going to speak to the boy when the door to the house opened. A tall, calm woman with short curly black hair walked in. She had warm brown skin and a strong frame. She was not dressed in costume suiting the room's theme, but wore modern clothes with a pin on her jacket, which Handsome recognized. It was the History Camp logo, an hourglass set within an eye, the same image as on the transport. Handsome's mother had a pin just like it, so he knew this woman must be an H.C. elder as well. She gave no long and warm greeting, as one would expect at a regular theme park history camp, no niceties here. This was a room of hard cases. I need your attention, all of you. You're handsome. Take a seat on the bench by Shamira. Lincoln? Lincoln, stop calling for Talos. He cannot respond. You had your communicator removed. I know, Lincoln said sullenly. My name is Elder Cynthia Barnes. So here you are at history camp. Hard time history camp, the girl named Shamira muttered, not looking up from her drawing. Elder Barnes continued. None of you will see your families for at least a month. Hey, I was told two weeks, Handsome complained. Me too, the others added together. Plans change, Elder Barnes said. Understand that for the first time in your life you are on your own. Nobody will come to your rescue. 
Hansom knew this statement just wasn't true, since his parents had both worked at history camps, and his mother was now a director of several, like Elder Cynthia. He grew up hearing about the inner workings of the places. He knew that no participant at an H.C. was ever really alone or in danger, no matter how frightening a situation was designed to appear. While the whole idea was to make the young participants think they were in a time when there was no safety, there were batteries of humans and A.I.s behind the scenes looking out for each client. Elder Barnes walked over to the table and looked at the drawing Shamira was working on. Now sitting at the same table, Handsome could see it was a very accurate rendition of the interior of the room. There were the steps, complete with Lincoln sitting on them, the door, the shuttered windows, the fireplace with the grate and hanging pots, the straw floor, and the ceiling rafters, perspective included. "'That's wonderful, Shamira,' Elder Barnes said. "'It's true what I read about you. You have great artistic talent.' Shamira crumpled the paper into a bowl and pitched it into the unlit fireplace. Elder Barnes just took a step away and continued. "'Okay, let's get to work. You're all probably wondering what era you're in.' "'And I'm sure you're about to tell us,' Handsome said. "'Does anyone know where Verona, Italy is?' "'In, uh, Italy?' Lincoln suggested sourly. "'Very funny,' Elder Barnes said. "'It's a monument city now,' Handsome sighed, bored. "'Just the old city is left. "'They tore down and reclaimed everything that was built after 1700. "'All the newer roads, airports, sewers, everything was taken up. "'All students had been taught that as the human-engineered population decrease took effect "'several hundred years earlier, it was only logical that cities would shrink and disappear. "'And with no need for the growth economy anymore, "'most cities' reason for existence, that of an economic engine, disappeared too. "'As for transportation, roads and rails were replaced by levitation technology, "'making physical connections between cities obsolete.' "'You're right about the real Verona, handsome,' the elder said. "'It is a monument town with just a caretaker and an artisan population now. "'But what about Verona in the 14th century? "'Does anyone know something about that?' Shamira straightened, the tiniest bit of enthusiasm showing through. "'I remember I was in Verona a couple of years ago on a school trip. "'That's where that Romeo and Juliet story happened. "'I stood on her balcony.' "'Well, where you are now isn't anywhere near the original Verona. "'We're not even on the Italian peninsula. "'This is a history camp version of how Verona was a thousand years ago.' "'So what's the deal?' Handsome asked. "'The story.' "'He knew there was always a story. "'All you have to know is this. "'You're illiterate peasants. "'Handsome and Lincoln are apprentices to a spectacle maker. "'Shamira, you're a kitchen girl.' "'What's a spectacle maker?' Lincoln inquired. He makes eyeglasses. What are eyeglasses? he persisted. You'll find out, Elder Barnes answered. What's a kitchen girl? Shamira asked. You'll clean house and cook. Clean and cook? In here? she asked, looking at the rustic surroundings. I'm hungry, Lincoln said. When do we eat? "'You apparently refused to eat before you left home, didn't you, Lincoln? "'Now you'll have to wait.' "'Lincoln stuck out his lower lip and scowled. "'Elder Barnes looked at Handsome, sitting quietly, a quirky smile on his face. "'Have you nothing to add?' she asked. "'Nope,' Handsome answered lightly. "'All right, then. See you in a month or so.' And with that, Elder Cynthia walked out of the house. "'Wait!' Lincoln shouted, jumping to his feet, but the door slammed shut.' The teenagers were alone. They looked at each other. 
Hey, Handsome said, in way of a greeting. Hey, Shamira answered. This is stupid, Lincoln answered, putting a hand to his stomach. They all looked around, expecting something to happen. Shamira said, I say we just refuse to do anything. Yeah, Lincoln agreed angrily. What can they do? Nothing. Probably, Handsome said, but that's not very creative. Why don't we have some fun with them? How? Shamira asked. Well, Handsome began, then he smiled and motioned for the others to come close to him. Every child in the 24th century knew when a friend did this, he or she wanted to say something that an A.I. shouldn't hear. Handsome cupped his hand and whispered to the other's ears. My mother's a history camp elder. I know how these places work. The best way to screw with their heads is to make believe you're cooperating. Then, when you know what their game is, you figure a way to disrupt. Yeah, Lincoln said, his attitude brightening. But how? Shamira asked. Like I said, we'll just play along till we know enough to screw with them. Yeah, screw with them, Lincoln repeated. Too bad they took my encyclopedia slate board on the ride here, Shamira said. It could tell us everything we wanted to know about 14th century Verona. Handsome chuckled. Fear not, my friends. Help is at hand. Handsome looked around and then took something from the little coin pouch on his belt. He put his hand within their secret circle and opened his fingers. In his hand lay the tiny brass lamp. Whoa, my new friend Handsome, Lincoln said. Good work. A genie, Shamira exclaimed in whispered excitement. Is that a new G-4000, Lincoln asked. I heard they're super nuts. I don't know how crazy this genie is yet, Handsome said. I got him from a friend this morning. Haven't had time to call him out. Genies were better than encyclopedia slate boards, which were just repositories of universal information. A genie was an artificial intelligence which possessed universal knowledge, but enjoyed making trouble too. They were made by blackers, secretive and rebellious youths who still believed in raging against the machine. While not strictly illegal and mostly harmless, genies were frowned upon. And unlike Charlene, who was a solid entity, a genie appeared as a colorful holographic character projected from its lamp. These mechanistic rascals told their young possessors rude jokes, helped them cheat on school tests, aided in the playing of pranks, and in general, endorsed and promoted bad behavior. What more could healthy, rebellious kids ask for? If one were to bypass a genie's holographic projection and delve into the gel brain substance within the brass lamp, one could find reference files on every topic in the world. All textbooks, scientific papers, treatises, newspapers, magazines, memoirs, letters, censuses, phone books, warehouse inventories, catalogs, movies, videos, newscasts, shopping lists, matchbook covers, everything, absolutely everything ever recorded, scribbled, scratched, and saved by Homo sapiens. All this information was then put into a memory gel the size of a grain of rice. Added to this was a powerful 24th century heuristical cross-inference engine personality. You don't know what this guy is all about? Shamira asked. No, I've had AI solids on my keister all day. Well, call him out, Lincoln said. Hey, genie, you in there? Handsome whispered. Come on out. All clear. Nothing happened. Maybe he's a dud, Lincoln suggested, frowning. Suddenly the brass lamp vibrated in Handsome's hand, and a tiny voice, raspy yet lyrical, emitted from the charm. 
Spin around, my new master, so I may scan the area for prying eyes. We don't want the game over before it's begun. Handsome looked at Lincoln and Shamira, and all looked cautiously around the room. Handsome was aware of the ever-contradictory history camp rules of balancing privacy and safety. Since the game had not begun yet, students couldn't or shouldn't be spied upon. Handsome held the charm just at his scapula, pretending to show it off as a necklace. "'What do you think if I wore it like this?' he said to the others. "'Nifty,' Lincoln said, playing along now. "'Spin around, like at a fashion show,' Shamira said. "'Okay,' Handsome agreed, impressed with the quick thinking of both his new comrades in trouble. The genie would be scanning the room in its entirety. Handsome stopped spinning and said, seemingly to the other teens, "'So, what do you think?' "'All clear,' the gravelly voice said. Handsome smiled and put the small brass oil lamp onto the table. Immediately a wisp of holographic smoke curled out of the lamp's tiny spout. Then poof, an image about twenty-five centimeters stood in front of them. It was a little satyr. He had the hind legs and hooves of a goat, a dwarfish human body and head, pointed ears, bushy eyebrows, short dreadlocks, and an impish smile. "'Wow!' Handsome said. "'Greetings, interestingly costumed youth,' the gnarly image said. "'My name is Pan, the god of Arcadia and Anarchy at your service.' Pan gave a salutary bow, then looked up. "'And you must be handsome. Mistress Rosalind told me all about you. She thinks you're hot stuff,' he said, winking. "'You don't look so crazy,' Lincoln said. "'Looks can be deceiving,' the hairy image replied, as his slit eyes glowed a hot yellow. "'Great,' Lincoln said gleefully. Shamira was peering at the little image intensely. "'I've looked at lots of artwork from the Greek period,' she said. "'I love to draw all the gods. Pan is one of my favorites.' "'Flattery will get you everywhere, dear lady,' he said, bowing again. "'So I now have not one, but two masters and a charming mistress. "'Oh, blessings upon me! It is my joy to serve. "'Did I hear correctly, while seconded within Master Handsome's coin pouch, "'that your names are Shamira and Lincoln?' "'Yes,' Shamira answered, still looking at him as if she were getting ready to draw.' Are you always that tiny? No, my default size is actually a grand meter in height, but I can be any size or shape. Listen, you guys, Handsome said. We better get cracking. Whatever they have planned is going to get going soon. They won't let us cool our heels long. What's the situation? the little imp asked. Does it have anything to do with these costumes you're wearing? Yeah, we're at a history camp, Shamira said. A hard time history camp, Lincoln added, and they're not feeding us. Ah, so the scene is set in all the actors assembled. I shall join the fray as gadfly to a picnic, and we shall make jolly upon the heads of your oppressors. Tell me, do we know at least what year this is supposed to be? 1347 Italy, Handsome said. "'Holy Hades, god of the underworld,' Pan said, looking shocked. "'The year of the Black Death. They really do want to scare you.' "'The Black what?' "'Never mind that now,' Pan said. "'Is there more to tell?' "'Well, Lincoln and I are supposed to be apprentices to a spectacle-maker,' Handsome said. "'And I don't even know what a spectacle is,' Lincoln added. "'I'm supposed to be a kitchen girl here. Yuck!' 
Not much to go on, but interesting, interesting, Pan said, stroking his chin. Well, time is on our side, as it always is with youth. Let's see, let's see how to begin, he said, looking around thoughtfully. Aha, handsome, upon your tunic I perceive a fold of cloth where the shoulder meets the sleeve. There is a bit of loose thread there. Shamira, as an artist, deft must be your fingers. Slip my lamp into yon fold and secure it, hidden from sight with the thread. Make sure that the top of the lamp is facing out of the tiny opening which you must leave. From this aperture I shall not only be able to view the scene of our actions, but also direct a sonic beam toward each of your ears. This way only you three will be able to hear any instructions I may give. Handsome, I must rely on you to move your shoulder and point where I say." The teenagers grinned, enjoying the idea of another voice being back in their heads. Excellent, Handsome commented. Zippy, Lincoln laughed. Less than a minute later, Shamira was tightening the thread that hid Pan from view. Lincoln had his nose close to the tiny opening for the AI to look out of. Can you really see out of that little thing and send us secret messages? Yes, Master Lincoln, Pan said. When I whisper thus, I can direct a sonic beam and even bend it slightly, compressed so only those ears into which I choose can hear it. Hey, that tickles, all three teens said at once. The sonic beam caused an echoing whisper in their inner ears. And you even can bend the beam so handsome can hear you. Zippy, Lincoln said. I shall be your wiser adviser, Pen whispered again, your teacher of trouble, your maven of mischief. Just then, the door to the house swung open again. Chapter 6 Handsome and the others turned. A very large man stood before them. He wore a collarless blouse under a heavily stained wool sweater. Even his coarse leggings were grimy. But the oddest part of his appearance was the heavy, bone-rimmed spectacles perched on his nose. The magnifying properties of the lenses made his eyes look like an owl's. The man stared at them for a moment, and then he smiled broadly. "'So, here you are,' he said gleefully. "'I went to the church to meet you, but they said the priest brought you to my house already. Buenvenuto, my new apprentices. Welcome.' The teenagers just stood and stared back at him. The big man furrowed his brow. "'Hey, what's the matter?' he continued. "'Cat got all your tongues? Why you just stand there? Madonna mia!' While the man was talking in Earth Common, he spoke with a heavy Italian accent and added in the occasional Italian word or phrase. Handsome knew that since visitors to history camps couldn't be expected to know every language ever spoken, the enactors had to talk in the common language and simulate the feel of a foreign or ancient dialect. The man accented his speech by waving his meaty hands, which were stained a deep red. "'What?' Shamira asked. "'What? What?' the man repeated. "'You ask what? What are you, stupid, eh? Maybe I should send you and your brother back to your papa.' "'My brother? I don't have a brother,' Shamira said. In the twenty-fourth century, two words seldom heard were brother and sister, or, for that matter, cousins, nephews, or nieces.' For centuries, the one-child family had been a strict law. Now that the planet's population had reached the agreed human target level of 300 million, laws were changing. People could win the right to a second child through a lottery. Lincoln looked closely at the enactor and laughed. Jesus, this guy's pretty zippy. 
In a blink, the man was over to Lincoln and slapped him across the back of his head. No cursing! No taking God's name in vain! Not in my house! Not ever! Lincoln froze with shock. He had never in his whole life been hit. "'Jesus!' he blurted again. A fresh slap landed on his skull. Not hard, but hard enough. "'I said, no use the Lord's name in a curse!' he shouted. The man raised a red-stained hand over his head. Lincoln looked up at a face so contorted the eyebrows came together. "'Okay, okay, that's enough,' Handsome said, stepping between them. The door of the house opened again, and a tall, buxomly woman entered." Giuseppe, why do you shout so? she asked. Then she saw the teenagers and became excited. They're here! Oh, they're here! she cried emotionally. Thanks be to Cristo, you are all safe. Benvenuto, thanks be to Cristo! She came over and grabbed the children in turn, kissing each one on both cheeks. Benvenuto, benvenuto! Oh, you must be Carmela. Thanks be to Cristo, you are safe. Thanks be to Cristo, she kept repeating. Then she stepped back. Oh, Giuseppe, look at them. Such beautiful children, she said, dabbing her eyes with her veil. They're not children. They're my apprentices and your kitchen girl. Yes, but thanks be to Cristo, they're safe. Father Lara arranged with your parents to come to us from the country. This bigger city must be so scary to you. It was to me when I was a girl, but you'll get used to it. Where's Father Lara? He just dropped them off and left, the actor named Giuseppe said. Handsome smiled again. He knew how things worked at History Camp. The enactors were giving the newcomers a backstory, continually feeding them information about their new selves. If a stubborn child refused to play along, denying his or her new identity, they would be ignored till they relented. It could take a few hours or a few days. Handsome decided to play along to see what was up. "'That's it, Giuseppe. The priest just left us here,' Handsome said." "'Yes, Signora. We're supposed to tell you he was busy and had to go.' He could see something in the woman's eyes, surprised that a new recruit was playing along so quickly. But as fast as it showed, it passed. Then Handsome felt a swat on the back of his head. "'You talk to a lady without a proper introduction?' the big man bellowed. "'And you call me by my Christian name?' "'I am your master. You call me Master, Master Cagliari.' Handsome took a half-step backward as the large enactor made like he was going to swat him again, daring the teenager to say something. But Handsome smiled and bowed a little, thinking what a good actor this man was. The enactor calmed down and said, "'This is my wife, Signora Cagliari.' "'Buongiorno, la Signora Cagliari,' Handsome said in Italian, offering another half-bow. "'Oh, you see, Giuseppe, such nice manners,' the signora gushed. She came forward and offered her hand. "'You're so tall. You must be Romero. And the priest said you even have a last name. Monticelli?' "'Yes, that's it. Romero Monticelli.' Handsome took her hand gently and bowed again, accepting his new name. "'And you must be Carmela,' the woman said to Shamira. "'Such a beautiful face, Bella.' "'He's not a Romero. He's a handsome,' Lincoln said, speaking in a silly Italian accent. "'Yes, he's very handsome,' the signora said, without skipping a beat. "'And you're cute too, Maruccio. That's your name, eh? I am Signora Cagliari, Maruccio.' She repeated his new name, saying it slowly. 
Lincoln made a face and replied in his affected accent, "'I'm a normal cutie or whatever. I'm a Lincoln, and he's not Romero. His name is a handsome, and she's Shamiro.' The master reached toward Lincoln and grabbed the top of his lyre pipe, pulling on it so it uncovered his head and lay across his back. Lincoln's hair popped up in every direction, giving him a comical look. "'You take off your hat when you speak to my wife,' the master said. "'This is the lady who feeds you. Show respect.' "'Feeds me? Finally. Hey, I'm starving.' "'Sure, Maruccio,' the signora said. "'Don't you worry. Carmela and I will make you a nice meal. "'It will be ready in a few hours.' "'Hours? My stomach is going nuts now,' Lincoln complained. "'Hey, watch your mouth,' the master shouted. "'Handsome laughed loudly to get Lincoln's attention. "'Hey, Maruccio,' he said. "'When Lincoln looked, Handsome scratched his shoulder, "'pointing with one finger where Pan was hidden.' "'Oh, yeah,' Lincoln said, a devilish smile coming to his lips. Then he said with an unsubtle tone that indicated he intended to get even with these people, "'Yeah, yeah, sure, Maracuti, call me that. That'll be just Zippy.' "'Don't we have last names?' Shamira asked the signora, seeming to get in the game. "'I don't know,' Signora Cagliari said. "'Do you and your brothers have a last name?' Shamira and Lincoln looked puzzled at each other. They shrugged. The signora added, "'Then I guess you don't. It's common enough.' "'Okay,' the master said, clapping his hands together. "'Boys, you come with me to the shop. It's time to start learning your new trade.' The teens looked at each other, apprehensive about being separated. "'I said, let's go, and the armo.' And with that, he whacked Handsome on the back and pulled Lincoln by the shoulder. "'Keep your tights on, man,' Lincoln complained as he was marched toward the door." "'Watch your mouth,' the master said, opening the door and pulling Lincoln through, "'or it will be more than your stomach hurting.' "'Keep the faith, Carmela,' Handsome said, winking at Chimera as he exited. The door closed, and Chimera was left alone with the female and actor. "'When will they be back?' Chimera asked apprehensively. "'Do not worry, my dear,' the signora said. "'Dinner is nine o'clock. They will be back for then.' Nine tonight? That's a long time.' "'No, no, morning, dear. Dinner.' "'Where I come from, dinner is at night.' "'How strange. We have dinner at nine in morning and supper at five at night.' "'We do breakfast at eight in the morning, lunch at noon, and dinner, some call it supper, at six or seven. "'Really? Three meals in one a day. How do you get any work done? "'Well, you're in the big city now. When in a Rome, do as Romans do. When in Verona?' Shamira looked deeply into the eyes of the enactor Signora, who was looking back at her with bright, friendly eyes. "'Man, everything is strange here,' Shamira said offhandedly. "'Yes, you come from a farm to a big city. Of course things seem odd, but you get used to it.' Shamira admired the actor for the way she stayed in character. Then she chuckled. "'I gotta admit,' Shamira said, "'the boys really freaked out when your husband smacked them. He acted really mad.' "'Oh, no, Carmela. Maybe the master was a little angry, but not much. He's just very strict with apprentices because that's what masters must do.' He's a very good man. Shamira recognized that the enactor was interpreting everything to fit the backstory. There was no use talking straight, and she had agreed with the boys to wait and see. Whatever you say, Signora Cagliari, whatever you say. So, 
what's first? First? First we must make dinner. But to do that, we must go to the market. Come. Chapter 7 As Lincoln was led into the barnyard by Master Cagliari, he had the urge to swat the big man's patronizing hand off of his shoulder. The large, thick fingers digging into his bony body really bugged the youngest teen, but he had agreed to play along, so he clenched his jaw and said nothing. As they walked past the barn, Master Cagliari said, "'That's where you sleep.' Lincoln stopped short. "'We sleep in a barn?' the younger teen exclaimed. "'In the loft,' the master explained. "'It's nice and warm in winter. Sort of.' The enactor was looking down at Lincoln, and Lincoln could tell that he was still sizing him up. Then the enactor spoke again. "'You boys, I think we got off, how they say, on the wrong foot.' And a household or a business, they also say, is like an army. We must all march with the same feet at the same time, or we trip over each other. What do you say to that, boys, eh? Lincoln mugged a face and shrugged. The master looked at Handsome. Kind of stretching a metaphor, but sure, I get it, Handsome replied. The enactor master gave another conciliatory gesture and went on. So, I tell you boys what. I am a very strict master, that no change. But I try to be fair, always. My job is to teach you to be the best lens makers you can. But to do that, first you must be the best apprentices. We forget about the little taps on the head and start again, okay? And with that, Lincoln felt the big red hand come off his shoulder and saw it appear in front of him. The master was offering to shake hands. Lincoln put his hand out and saw it disappear into a very large paw. Good, good, the master said, his mood lightening instantly. And you too, Lincoln watched Handsome smile and shake hands. To good beginnings, the enactor said, beaming. Large, perfect teeth shone out from his face. Lincoln could see that the man's teeth were stained, though, and wondered what type of makeup was used to make them that way. He sort of remembered that people in the past didn't always clean their teeth, and that the history camp and actors simulated this. "'Okay, then,' the master continued, "'to the shop.' Just around the corner of the barn they came to another outbuilding. It was made of heavy wood planks and topped with another thatched roof. There was a central door with large windows on either side of it. Both windows were made of forty panes of wavy, hand-blown glass, each less than a hand-span square. "'This is the shop.' "'Come, I show you the new lathe,' the master said, opening the door. He did it with reverence, like he was going into some place special. He seemed excited. "'I just got the new lathe,' he said. "'The newest, most wonderful machine for making lenses for the discs for the eyes.' And he rubbed his thumb and index finger together to express that the lathe had cost a lot of money. "'What's a lathe?' Lincoln asked. The master stopped and looked surprised. "'A lathe?' You don't know what a lathe is. Lincoln made a face. Oh, my boy, it's a big, wonderful machine. It spins around real fast, and we shape flat glass into fantastic things to help old people see and even read books. You know what a book is, eh? Ah, uh, da. What's a book? Lincoln made a foolish face again, crossing his eyes and twisting his tongue in his open mouth, so he lisped. I think I saw one in a museum once. You'll never see even a Bible? I think he's making a joke, Master Cagliari, Handsome said. What? Oh, well, a joke. 
<laughs> a mega joke. Okay, come and see my new baby. As he opened the door, he peeked behind it and called, Hello, new baby. You sleep well? Now I make a joke. Oh, you're a quick one, Lincoln retorted drolly as he and Handsome stepped into the shop. Lincoln heard Pan's voice in his ear. Now, Master Lincoln, try not to be too sarcastic or disrupt yet. We must bide our time before we strike. Yeah, yeah, Lincoln mumbled. He looked around the shop and saw a small unlit fireplace built into the back wall. In it hung several metal pots on swing arms. To the right was a water barrel and a heavy table loaded with tools all lined up neatly. Hand-forged pliers, files, brass bowls, scrapers, quite a few ceramic pots, odd-looking brushes, and many unpolished blank discs of glass. In front of one window was another table. Many pairs of spectacles at different stages of assembly lay there. Master Cagliari pointed to the still-hidden space behind the open door. "'And here she is,' the master said, closing the door to reveal what was hidden behind. "'Our new baby!' "'This is what you are making such a big deal about?' Lincoln asked. He was expecting to see some large metal monstrosity like he had seen in the Museum of the First Industrial Revolution, something with metal gears, wheels, and pulleys. This lathe was a simple wooden structure about a head taller than himself and just wider than his outstretched hands could span. It had heavy vertical wood posts at each end with plain wooden feet. Two parallel cross members about halfway up held a spindle-type device, and at the end of the spindle, a wooden disc. Affixed to the disc was a round, polished lens, about two inches in diameter. "'Come, come in, young apprentices. Look here. This is the marvel on which we create lenses to help the old and almost blind see.' A definitely unimpressed Lincoln went up to the spindle and put his fingers near the lens, but he drew back quickly, saying— again with dripping sarcasm. Ooh, it looks so delicate. Can I touch? No, Master Cagliari said seriously. You must not touch till you have been properly trained. Then he pointed to the lens. To make a beautiful thing like this, we grind and polish a raw piece of glass while spinning it very fast. Much to Lincoln's consternation, Handsome seemed actually impressed. What do you mean spins real fast, Master? Handsome asked his question quite genuinely. Or maybe he's just playing along, Lincoln thought, making the old guy think we're interested. Spins! Spins, the master repeated. Look, he said, pointing to an eight-foot flexible pole protruding from the sidewall and ending right over top of the lathe spindle. This lathe, she's called the pole lathe, and this cord hanging down from there, see? It loops around the grooves on the spindle and then to the pedal on the floor. The pedal was a plain piece of lumber about two feet long. One end was hanging off the floor by the cord, and the other was attached to the foot of the machine with a leather hinge. Press this pedal, pull the cord, the master continued. Pull down the pole, the spindle she spins real fast. Master Cagliari regarded Handsome, giving each part of the lathe a good look. Ah, you are very curious, Romero. Can you see the ingenuity of this meraviglia moderna, this modern marvel? You see how it works. Not exactly. Watch, boys, the master said, springing into action. It's like magic. Master Cagliari pulled up a stool and sat in front of the lathe. He adjusted the hanging cord so it was taut and snug against the grooves of the spindle. He put his foot on the pedal and pushed it down. 
the pole at the top, she bends, bends like a bow and arrow, yes? Now, as I push down on the pedal more, the pole comes down, but look, look! The spindle came to life as the cord was pulled through it. It spun furiously. When the pedal was fully depressed, the master stopped and looked at the boys. Now, watch this. You won't believe what you see. His eyes lit up with great excitement. He relaxed his foot and the pole sprung back toward the ceiling. The spindle spun furiously in the opposite direction. Isn't that the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? The machine, she does half the work. Before we work on a bow lathe, you had to do all the spinning, both ways, and work with only one hand. This is so much easier, he concluded, flashing his dazzling smile. Ah, Handsome said appreciatively. But what do you do with these lenses? Lincoln asked. What do we do with the lenses? The master repeated. What do we do with them? He pointed to his own face, to his own spectacles. We make discs for the eyes, of course. We do that over there, he said, pointing to the assembly table. On it lay wire, bone, ivory, and other frames, some with lenses, some without. Oh, I thought you wore those to be silly or scare us. What? the master said wonderingly. Then he laughed. Oh, of course, you come from the countryside and have never seen the discs for the eyes. Let me explain, Maruccio. When a person gets older, their eyes become dim. They often cannot see well enough to do their labors. Can you imagine the seamstress who made your clothes if she couldn't see her work, or a woodcarver, a stonemason, an apothecary, or a merchant who knows how to read and do the numbers? If a person cannot see to do his work, how will he feed himself and his family? These wonderful inventions are a miracle, a gift from God that you will learn to make. My priest, he couldn't read the Bible anymore. I made him some discs for the eyes. The first time he put them on and looked at his holy book, he begins to cry. He could read again. Tears streamed from his face. Giuseppe, you are an angel of mercy, he said to me. Praise God for these discs for the eyes, he said, crossing himself. The master took them over to one of the work tables. He picked up a rough disc of glass. This is what we start with, he said. The glass was rough and scratched. He handed the plain disc to Lincoln for inspection. He gave it a brief, bored glance and passed it to Handsome. The lens on the lathe was made from something like this, Handsome asked. See. How, he asked, sounding impressed. Lincoln yawned and looked around the room. The master, apparently pleased that one of his students was enthusiastic, became animated. I show you... Maruccio, stir the coals and add wood to the fire, he said. We must heat up the mastic. Huh? Lincoln replied. Get the fire going. Heat up the mastic. Lincoln just stood there, confused. Finally, the master went over to the fireplace and picked up an iron bar that was leaning against the wall. Stir the coals, the enactor repeated, poking the bar into the ash bed. As he exposed the bottom level, a dull red vein of smoldering coals appeared. A few wisps of smoke began to rise. See, the fire, she sleeps under the ashes from yesterday. Add wood, Maruccio. Lincoln continued to stand frozen, not knowing what to do. He could see the enactor was frustrated with him. It was similar to the looks he was used to getting from his teachers and parents. The memory made Lincoln frown. 
Wood, Maruccio, wood. Lincoln noticed the wood bin next to the fireplace. He picked out a thick piece of limb wood about two feet long and as thick as his wrist. No, 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 Maruccio, get some kindling, some small pieces to wake up the fire, like this. Lincoln watched the large man get onto his knees and pick out some wood shavings and twigs from the bottom of the wood box. He gently placed some around the glowing opening and popped a few into its center. He blew on them and the kindling erupted into a small flame. Next he built a little structure of twigs over it. In a few seconds the fire grew. He added a tangle of thin branches. When this is blazing, that is when you add your limb wood and logs, okay, Maruccio? Then the master swung one of the arms with a pot hanging from it over the flame. Now we heat up the mastic. What's mastic? Handsome asked. Mastic! Gets cola, glue, to stick the glass to the lathe. She's made from the tears of the mastic bush. Now come, the master continued. I show you the parts of the lathe while the mastic warms up. As they walked over to the lathe, Lincoln made a face and whispered, Tears of a bush? Farmers cut the bark of the mastic bush with a blade, and the plant exudes a milky resin to close the wound. The farmers gather this as a natural glue. It also has medicinal qualities. Over at the lathe, the enactor said, This is the spindle of the lathe. He gestured grandly to the whole area that spun. The spindle, she spins. Then he touched the wooden disc that the lens was attached to. This is the lap. See the spot in the middle of the lens? That's the mastic holding the lens to the spindle. He then took a wooden shim, a very thin wedge shape, and gently pushed the thinnest edge under the lens. He gently pried the lens loose. You must be very careful not to break the lens, he said, keeping his full concentration on his work. The lens popped off, and he held it against Handsome's eye, which became magnified like the master's. Here, Romero, put the lens on the work table. Hold it by the edges. Grease from your hand can eat into the smooth surface. Maruccio, you hold this. He handed the younger apprentice the little bits of mastic he then scraped from the lap. Lincoln looked at the crumbs for a second and let them fall to the floor, brushing off his hands. Maruccio, the master scolded as he dropped to his knees to search for the little white flecks. What do you do? You'll waste a valuable commodity. Come, help me, Maruccio. Lincoln got down and joined in the hunt for the bits of mastic. A very valuable commodity the master repeated. It comes only from one island in the whole world. Most shops use pitch and ash. Very dirty. Much harder to clean off the lens. But it's such a little bit, Lincoln complained. Waste not, want not. The enactor master got up and went back to the fireplace and motioned for the boys to follow him. The fire was going well now and the mastic was bubbling. The master took Lincoln's hand and picked a few pieces of fluff out of the mastic, then brushed the rest into the pot. Okay, then, the enactor said, holding up the blank disc of glass. I show you lens-making from the beginning. He picked up a short wooden ruler and a sharp metal scribe in the other hand. We must get the exact center of the disc so it spins perfetto. The master carefully used the crude ruler to determine the exact center of the disc, then scratched a small X into it with the scribe. He then put the disc in the jaws of the pair of long-nosed pliers and placed it in the top part of the flame. You heat up the glass so the mastic will stick to it better. 
After turning the glass over and over in the open flame, the master wet his finger with his tongue and touched it to the glass. Ouchie, he said, laughing. She's already. He placed a generous blob of mastic on the opposite side of the glass to the X and went quickly to the lathe. Do you see the little dot in the middle of the lap? Holding the lens with a thick rag, the enactor leaned over and, with much care, pushed the hot glass onto the dop, holding it there until he seemed satisfied it had cooled enough to hold. He gave the spindle a few turns, and everyone saw it was, indeed, perfectly centered and true. Chapter 8 Now we shape the lens, the master continued jovially. Next to the lathe was a small table where the craftsman placed the tools he needed at hand. He inspected the cutting edges of a file the length of a man's hand and as wide as his thumb. We start with this one, big grooves, see? He then handed the boy spectacles similar to the ones he was wearing. These lenses are flat, Hansom observed. They don't magnify anything. Oh, yeah, Lincoln said, looking around the room through his pair. They just protect the eyes, the glass she flies, the master replied, sitting forward on the wooden bench and readjusting the lathe's cord. You see the three levels of grooves on the spindle. When you put the cord at the big spindle, she spins the slowest. In the middle, the middle speed. The littlest one, she goes zip, zip. Zippy, eh, Maruccio? Looping the cord around the largest groove, he pushed the pedal with one foot, and the spindle spun one way. Then he released his weight, and the spindle rotated back the other way. After four or five spins, he established a rhythm. He slowly touched the file to the thin edge of the disc at a 45-degree angle, then a minute later changed to a second angle. Little shards of glass flew, and a wide bevel appeared on the disc's edge. "'Ah!' Handsome said appreciatively. When the lathe stopped, Lincoln made a face. "'No way that's going to turn into a lens like the other,' Lincoln said. "'It looks like crap. It's got more scratches now than before.' "'Patience, little man. Hand me that smaller file, Maruccio,' the master said, pointing to the table. He started the machine spinning again and began smoothing out the rough bevels with the finer file, creating as fine a convex shape as possible. Lincoln began fidgeting. When the lathe stopped, the beveled ridges were gone, but it was still a mass of scratches. Okay, the big filing is done. Now we grind the lens four times to get it smooth. First, the pumice stick. You give it to me, eh, Maruccio? Yeah, yeah, Lincoln said, still sounding bored. Which one is that? The master pointed to a thick wood dowel with one end carved out. A piece of porous pumice stone was inserted into it. When the pumice was finished being pressed to the glass, Lincoln had to admit to himself that the scratches were indeed finer. He was about to give this large concession, but the master spoke first. That's the number one grinding, Maruccio. How many grindings did I say there would be? I don't know. Two? You said, Handsome began, but stopped. What, Romero? How many? The enactor asked. Don't be shy. You said there were four grindings, Handsome answered quietly. Lincoln stared at Hanson resentfully. That's right. Now, Romero, go over to the tabula and bring me the pot with the number two on it, and bring the mixing bowl and brush. As Hanson went, the master leaned over to Lincoln. Little man, you must keep your ears open and remember well what I tell you. That's the way you learn, eh? Even though this admonishment was done in private, Lincoln felt annoyed. 
I, I can't find the pot with the number two on it, handsome called. Madonna mia, the master said, turning to the supply table and looking perplexed. I say bring the pot with the number two on it, and here she is, right in front of you. Where? handsome asked. Right in front of your eyes. Do tre quattro, he said, pointing to pots with Roman numerals on them. Then the enactor master paused. He clapped his hands and held them together in an act of contrition. Oh, I'm so sorry, Romero. I thought, but of course you cannot read numbers. Don't feel bad, Romero. You just come to the biggest city from the country. Soon we all sit down and I teach you your numbers. You'll teach me to read numbers? Handsome said, somewhat flustered. I can read numbers, just not this type, and I can read words, too. Lincoln couldn't help smile a little. Handsome doesn't look so smart now, he thought. Ha! the master laughed. Romero, don't feel bad, and don't tell a una fib grande. We're gonna be friends, we always tell her the truth. You read? Come on, I hardly read. We're craftsmen. Why do we need to read? But we do need to know a few numbers. Don't worry, I teach you soon. Lincoln watched Handsome pause, smile a bit, then sigh. Sorry, Master Cagliari, whatever you say. So, this is number two, this is number three, and this is number four? Now Lincoln began to admire how cool Handsome was keeping as he realized he's setting this guy up good. Good boy, Romero, the master said. See, it's best when we do like God wants and be honest Christians. True, eh, Maruccio? It's all number two to me, he responded, smiling. The master held the pot marked I.I. in front of the boys. Here, feel it. Both took a pinch of the contents between their fingers. Now try il numero three, number three. Lincoln almost dropped the first grit absentmindedly to the ground, but made a show of putting it back in the pot. The master smiled. They both tested numbers three and four. Number three was a much finer grit. Pot number four's grit was almost like powder. We take the pots over to the lathe and this mixing bowl, a measure, cup, and a brush, too. Romero, don't forget that brass bowl. They carried the items to the little table by the lathe. Good, now let's get busy. Maruccio, take this mixing bowl and put three little cups of warm water in it. Lincoln went over to the fireplace and measured out water from the cauldron over the fire. It's ouchy, he warned as he handed it back. The enactor winked as he took the supplies. Then he scooped out a cup of the number two grit. I pour it in the water and mix it up with the brush till it's paste. He stirred it for the better part of a minute. Now, I paint it on the glass. There, nice and thick. Good. Romero, give me the brass bowl, grazie. See how the bottom of the bowl is round. That is the exact shape of the lens we want. Now we take the bowl and we put it over the glass and start the lathe. His arms tensed noticeably as he leaned his whole body into the spinning disc. As the harsh scraping lessened, he removed the bowl, applied the pasty grit to the glass again, and repeated the process several more times. This done, he wiped the glass with a rag. It was still not clear, but there was a further reduction of the glass and it was more in the shape of a finished lens. Maruccio, wash out the brass bowl, the mixing bowl, and the measure cup. Then we do the number three grit. Though Lincoln was loath to admit it, he was quite impressed. He said, joking, Yes, master, and saluted. While he was at the barrel, he heard the master ask Handsome, Hey, Romero, 
You think you could work the lathe one day? Sure, it doesn't look that hard, but I can see it takes practice. Oh, yes, lots of practice, but I think you smart enough. Lincoln was back at the lathe with the wash tools. I can work the lathe, too, he said. Of course you will, Maruccio. One day, the master said. But you are too small now. You'll need more weight and muscle first, maybe in a year. You'll be a good assistant for now, cleaning tools and handing them back to us while we work. We must work as a team to make many lenses. That's not fair, Lincoln complained. The master took the bowls and inspected them. He made a tisking sound and pulled out some of the old grit, holding it under Lincoln's nose. Maruccio, I told you to make sure there was no old grit in the bowls. We only want the finer grit to touch the glass now. If you want to work the lathe some day, you must do things precisely, for lenses are precise things. Watch them again, he said somewhat curtly. When he returned, the master reinspected them. With a little nod of approval, but no words of praise, he repeated the process of brushing and grinding with the number three and then number four grit. For number four, I put in a little less grit so he's more watery, the master said, mixing up the new pace. And I press on the bowl a little less hard. I let the grit in the lathe do the work now. After half a dozen applications, the master took the wet rag and wiped the lens again. Good. But it's not like the lens we saw when we came in, Handsome said. Yeah, it's not clear. It's still got, like, tiny, tiny scratches all over it, Lincoln observed. Oh, she's not finished yet. That was just the grinding. Now we do the polishing. All that work for a little piece of glass, Lincoln questioned. Come, the master said cheerily. We clean up the grinding equipment and get the polishing tools ready. The small table by the lathe was cleared, and jars, bowls, brushes, files, and rags were returned to the wooden bench. The master moved everything back into a neat order, exactly as it had been when they arrived. Turning back to the lathe, he said, And we clean up the lathe, too. The machine was covered with glass shards and grit. Chapter 9 All this work for one small lens... Ridiculous, Lincoln thought. The master took a small straw whisk and brushed the mess off of the lathe and onto the floor. He told Handsome to get the larger straw broom from the corner and sweep up the mess into a pile. I can sweep, Lincoln offered. No, it's okay. You help me. The master had Lincoln help him carry over a different brass bowl, another mixing bowl, a much smaller measuring cup, and a pot. What you notice is different about this brass bowl, eh, Maruccio? Lincoln inspected it. Oh, it's got that sticky stuff at the bottom of it. And what's that stuff called? The master asked. Oh, um... Mastic, Handsome said offhandedly while he swept. I was just going to say that, Lincoln flashed. It's all right, Maruccio, the enactor said. This is all very much to learn the first morning. Patience. Maruccio, get that little shovel and help Romero pick up the dirt from the floor. Put it in the dustbin. Lincoln made a face and got the ash shovel. As he leaned down to hold it for Handsome, he said, I knew it was Mastic. Sorry, man, but be cool. Can't you tell? He's trying to play us against each other. I would concur, Pan whispered. Remember, you are both on the same team. Oh, Lincoln said. You are playing along wonderfully, Master Handsome. Master Lincoln, follow his lead. 
We get back to work now, the master called. I want at least one lens made before dinner. I usually have five or six done by now. With the workplace cleaned, the polishing began. Master Cagliari gave the mixing bowl and a tiny wooden cup to Handsome. Pour the eight little cups of clean hot water into this bowl. When Handsome handed the bowl and cup back, the master took the cup and filled it with a dark red, almost brown powder. No use the grit brush. We use a very clean blush brush. The powder is called Ocido de Ferro, iron oxide, like rust. You know what rust is, eh? She's beaten into a powder, very, very fine. The master then liberally brushed on the thin paste to the glass. Now, look at the bottom of the bowl. See that sticky stuff all over the walls of the bowl? What's that called again, Maruccio? Mastic, Lincoln said quickly. See, si, good, good. The mastic she holds in place the tiny little bits of iron so they don't roll around like the grit. Now, Romero, get lots of paste on the brush, and when I take the bowl off the glass, you paint on more. Quickly, repitamente. We do this three, maybe four times. Repitamente, okay? The enactor moved the cord so it wrapped around the largest groove of the spindle. Handsome took the bowl and brush and stood at the ready next to the master, stirring it continually as he watched. "'What should I do?' Lincoln asked. "'You'll keep your big ears open and your little mouth shut,' the master answered as he began pedaling. "'You'll learn, Kapiska. Understand?' The mastic-lined bowl came into contact with the lens. Since the mastic was still hard, there was a slight jerking, and the spindle wanted to slow. Zip, 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 went the lathe. You could see the tension in the enactor's arms as he held the bowl in place, struggling to keep it from moving the slightest fraction. Then he slowed his pedaling and pulled the bowl away. The spindle came to a quick halt. Pronto, Romero! Handsome slathered on more of the thin iron oxide paste. Ancora, the enactor said, and the lathe quickly came back to life, and he reapplied the brass bowl. The red iron oxide liquid flew out from the centrifugal force of the spinning dop and onto the master's hands. The enactor stopped the lathe again and pulled away the bowl. Quickly, Romero, pronto! Handsome repeated his job on the now steaming lens. The bowl, she gets warm and then she gets hot. Between the third and fourth application, the master reached over and moved the cord from the largest spindle to the smallest. Now it'll go faster, Handsome said. See, the master said, pushing hard with the bowl against the glass. Over the din of the treadling and zipping, the master added, Now she's really getting ouchy, 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 he repeated. And then he stopped and pulled the bowl away again. Handsome went to brush more paste onto the lens. No more, the master said, out of breath. She's finished. Here, feel the base of the bowl. Careful. Both boys touched the bottom of the bowl at the same time. It almost burned their skin. Ouchie, they both said, this time both laughing. Now, look, look what you helped make, the enactor master said. He went very close to the glass and gently blew on it. The heat is so great, he said in a stage whisper. The glass, she starts to melt just on the surface. All the tiny little cracks get filled up with liquid glass and she becomes smooth. Satisfied the glass was now cool enough, he took a clean rag and wiped off the film left with the paste. 
The boys leaned in and saw how that disk of crude glass had been transformed into a smooth, convex dome. "'Next time I get to do the brushing,' Lincoln insisted. "'Now we grind and polish the back,' the master announced. "'My God, there's more!' Handsome exclaimed. "'Hey, no taking the Lord's name in vain,' the master said, his eyes flashing angrily again. "'Sorry, Master Cagliari,' Handsome said, putting his hands up in mock's defense. The master scowled a bit, but then smiled. "'Maruccio, take the mastic bowl and blush pot and put them back on the tool table. Then bring over a big flat pumice stone. You think you can figure out which it is?' "'You got it, Master Man,' Lincoln said as he picked up the used tools. "'Now, Romero, I removed the lens and put it on backside out,' the master continued. "'Come, hand me the wood shim.' The lens popped off. "'Now we go back to the mastic pot.' "'When do you think I can try the lathe?' Handsome asked. "'Oh, maybe in a month or two I will gamble a few discs on you.' "'Hey, look at me!' Lincoln shouted from across the room. Lincoln had taken off his safety glasses and put on the finest pair of spectacles from the finishing table. Beautifully polished tortoiseshell frames were perched precipitously on the end of his nose. The strong lenses magnified his eyes and made them look like two sunny-side-up eggs. "'Maruccio, no!' the master shouted. His trained actor's voice was so loud it startled Lincoln, who then jerked his head. The elegant spectacles flew off his tiny nose and fell onto the floor with a very unfortunate crack. Oops, Lincoln said. You've come to the end of this installment of The Lens and the Looker. We hope you enjoyed it. To find out how to get the other installments, go to www.loriekaufman.com. That's www.loriekaufman.com.